Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Chris von Ruden. He's an anthropologist and associate professor at the University of Richmond who researches how humans form status hierarchies and the evolution of human cooperation. We take it for granted that there are leaders in modern society. Presidents, prime ministers, kings and queens. Hierarchies are baked into our world. But what did leadership look like in an ancestral environment and why did it evolve in the first place? Expect to learn the two ways that primitive leaders could command respect from a group, why followership evolved at all in humans, why the female leadership paradox even exists, how leadership and hierarchies change as group size increases, whether leaders are altruistic or selfish, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chris Von Ruden. Chris von Ruden, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Fun to be here. What would you say are the interesting evolutionary questions about human leadership? Uh, well, first, um, you know, asking an evolutionary question uh, about leadership perhaps presumes that um, it was selected for, so that we've evolved some kind of motivation to adopt leadership or followership as members of groups. Um, and I think, you know, the, the research on that is still ongoing. Um, and so it would sort of 
require that over our evolutionary history and ancestral human societies, individuals that had such motivations to adopt leadership or followership, I mean, it takes two to tangle there, um, they, their reproductive success was improved or being just being members of a group in which leadership and followership was, was happening, enabled their groups to outperform other groups. Um, but a, taking an evolutionary perspective requires us to think about um, over evolutionary time skills where, where was leadership and followership adaptive, particularly the, the specific kinds and unique kinds of leadership and followership that, that humans engage in. Because um, leadership is fairly ubiquitous across social species. Um, but there are some unique properties to human leadership. How so? What like? Uh, well, I think first, um, in he, there's a lot of sort of so-called active leadership in humans, where you know leaders will talk directly to other group members to try and get individuals to coordinate, you know, use rhetoric, various other communication strategies to directly influence the behavior of others in their group. Um, now it's, you see instances of that in other species, but I think the majority of leadership. Um, in, in other species, and perhaps the majority of leadership in humans, too, might be more passive. So it's sort of one individual in, does some kind of action, and other members of the group observe that and decide it's in their interest to do the same. So it's not like that one, that one leader has actively communicated with other individuals to get them to do something. Like a, a lion decides that we're going to try and go after this particular thing and everybody else that's in that pride goes after it as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good example. Okay. Um, I think humans do that too. But I mean, I think when we use the word leadership, we're often thinking more of the, the active kind where I'm directing you or giving you explicit instructions or uh, things like that. Okay. Um, that, that is more rare, I think. And that's a function of the fact that we can communicate more deeply, I guess, that we can hold different levels of hierarchy within our minds, that people can be statusful at scavenging or communicating or fighting or whatever. Whereas, I guess, if you're a lion, it's, are you big and powerful? Yes, no. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, maybe what you're, you're, you're bringing up is division of labor. Like, if you're in a group, there might be some people with some skills that are better than others. And um, if solving some group goal... Or, or problem uh, can benefit from a division of labor. Certain people do some tasks and others do others. Leadership can help coordinate all that. Um, and so that kind of division of labor with coordinated by leadership, really rare. And I think that, but that is what makes humans and human groups so uh, incredible at, pro at solving problems and innovating and, yeah. I suppose that that's a reason that leadership would be more important. Like, if you have all of these different divisions working, you need somebody that is outside of the divisions to be able to bring them together to coordinate them toward a common goal. Exactly. And, and even that aspect of understanding that there's a common goal, I think, is not that common across species either. I think humans are really good at, I can understand that you have the same goal that I have, right? Um, even if that requires you to do, engage in some slightly different behavior than me, we both have some abstract notion of what the end goal will be. Um, and so there's other things that, that I think uh, it's not just about leadership, but about sort of other aspects of our psychology and our cooperativeness that come into play here. Well, but certainly leadership is, it can be the sort of glue that brings it together. Mm. What other elements are, are coming into play? Just our, our propensity to cooperate with others who are, especially those we're not related to, um, and our ability to to just understand what other people are thinking really well, such that 
I can create some mental representation of a goal that I know you share as well. Um, our ability to communicate through language. Um, yeah, all these other things are important. Why is it that humans have evolved to coordinate with people that aren't part of their genetic kin? That's, you know, a huge research program on that. Um, a lot of people will point to reciprocity where it pays to sort of help somebody if they'll help you back. Um, but that's it, it. There's sort of trouble with reciprocity, according to various models and, and scaling up to not just cooperating with non kin, but in large groups with non kin. Um, reputation is another mechanism that might be really important. So humans care a lot about reputation. Um, this relates to leadership and followership as well. Uh, and so uh, we're motivated to cooperate with individuals we may not know well or um, are related to because it has ramifications for how other people might treat us in the future. Um, or responding to punishment and reward uh, also can be a factor. Um, so, yeah, uh, other, uh, you know, more controversially, perhaps others have argued group selection might play a role in human cooperativeness, meaning um, ancestrally groups of humans that were more cooperative uh, outcompeted other groups and then their descendants were as a result more cooperative uh, by inheriting whatever traits led to the cooperativeness in the first place. Why would it be more rare in the animal kingdom and yet prevalent in humans? Does that suggest that humans have got more complex challenges that we need to face than other animals do? Yeah, uh, I think this is, you know, largely speculative still, uh, our understanding of how all this happened. Um, I, I like to think that a key was a transition to a hunting, hunting and gathering kind of ecology where uh, ancestral humans started going after food that was harder to get, um, that placed selection on greater intelligence, but also greater cooperativeness because getting after, going after food that's harder to get, you have to dig up or hunt down or scavenge. Um, it sometimes requires cooperation just in the act of pursuing those foods or at, you know, you could pursue it individually, but you might come home empty handed such that you're going to want to share with somebody who could help you. And then another day they might come home empty handed and you could share with them. So I think this transition to hunting and gathering was probably key to the shift to greater cooperativeness, greater communicative ability, greater intelligence, lots of things. Um, yeah. what, or what ends up determining who becomes a leader? Are you able to predict this? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of longstanding debate in psychology about the traits versus situations. And, um, you know, are there in our groups, are there particular things like uh, personality or intelligence or even things like body size um, that are more likely to uh, cause certain individuals to step forward as, as leaders? Um there's an interesting recent paper that found one of the key things that predicts leadership is our willingness to make decisions that could have that have consequences for others, uh, even where we're not certain what those consequences might, might be. Those people that are sort of less anxious about making decisions that impact others, where there's uncertainty, are more likely to emerge as leaders. Um, so there are lots of traits, but also situations matter tremendously. So... Uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, 
group members tend to, there's a lot of evidence group members in facing threats, external threats to the group, will tend to look to individuals to help coordinate who are have some signs of being more um, dominant in their personality. Um, and so that's been, you know, there are these interesting experiments that ask people to sort of choose a leader and they're shown an array of faces and they're given different situations. And in situations where people are, you know, are supposedly members of a group that are being um, uh, confronted with some other group that's attacking them, people tend to prefer faces of leaders that look more dominant or have more sort of masculinized kind of faces. Um, interpreting that is, is tricky. Um, but uh, there's some suggestion that, you know, to the extent ancestrally in their smaller groups, individuals who had more dominant traits uh, in face-to-face groups could more sort of maybe efficiently or rapidly coordinate others or were more able to implement um, punishment as incentive to get people to contribute. Um, but that, you know, dominant kinds of individuals or, or traits that are related to dominance comes with a risk that those kinds of leaders might exploit you. So there's this sort of trade-off, right, um, that can be situation-dependent. Um, when a group's facing existential threats, maybe you're less likely to worry about pursuing a more kind of dominant leader. Uh, other times, you might want to avoid that. Yes, um, if you end up locking in a tyrant just because you had a brief period of conflict, that's yeah. going to be bad long term. What are what are some of the similarities that we have with other animals? Are there certain traits that do seem to be pretty? Um, scalable pretty similar across different animal groups and ourselves so related to this the, the potential contribution of dominance related traits cues to body size or strength or, or more aggressive kind of personality um in other animals sometimes leadership is um tied to the dominance hierarchy so who is at the the top of the dominance hierarchy is more likely to lead groups to new move new directions or um uh, to act as uh, conflict mediators within groups. So you see that in, in other primates, that dominant individuals will sometimes break up fights. Um, so that, you know, and then so looking in humans, yeah, to the extent we, we have these preferences for individuals that have traits conducive to dominance, uh, preferences for them as leaders, and that has some sort of, you know, homology with the way that dominance can contribute to leadership in other primates and other animals. But there's lots of leaders and other animals that that are not uh, high in the dominance hierarchy, right? That um, uh, individuals that might have some some specialized kind of knowledge, or are first to move, and and this is getting back to this sort of passive kind of leadership, and rest of the group just sort of wants to do the same thing. So um, you know, and and so boldness, right? Kind of personality of sort of bold personalities, irrespective of their location in the dominance hierarchy can lead to leadership in other animals. And so you see that in humans too. Um, it's not, and especially in humans, given that um, we are much better able to uh, keep dominance from exploiting us by acting collectively to keep down dominant individuals so that, you know, we might prefer individuals to have some kind of dominant like traits in certain situations to help lead and coordinate, but we're also very suspicious of that and able to act collectively to, to take them down if needs be. 
What's the difference between uh, status hierarchies and leadership then? Does someone just in a human society rise up through the status hierarchy and then get popped out of the top as a leader? Or is there a relationship between the two at all? I think um, status hierarchy is like access to resources. So who gets more, who gets less? Um, but it, it can be tricky because leadership itself could be a, a contested resource. Like Because if gaining access to leadership gets you access to resources or reputation that improves your mating opportunities or, or anything else like that, then leadership itself becomes uh, sort of um, much more tied to the, the status hierarchy. Um, but leadership I would define as sort of differential influence in a group. And so having more influence over individual's behavior in pursuit of, uh, some collective goal. Um, so it's distinct from your location in the status hierarchy, but leadership can be the kinds of things individuals compete over or how in individuals act as leaders can influence subsequently their, their status. Presumably the um, leaders would be some of the highest status people within a group as well. In humans, uh, often yes, but um, not necessarily. So I think our political leaders are in a large-scale societies, <laughs> right? Uh, very good example. <laughs> often, very good example, know. yeah. Right. Um, what about the differences in traits for leadership in men and women? How, how do they uh, compete? intrasexually differently for that yeah i mean that's a, a minefield of an issue i think um i'm of the persuasion that uh uh men and women can you know can be as effective uh, as leaders that, that gender per se doesn't really matter in terms of leadership effectiveness but there might be some subtle things that um uh influence how men and women lead right so that are related to um, uh, our evolutionary history. So to the extent that men are more willing to compete um, using say physical violence, right? Or to take outsized risks that can, that can negatively impact health and safety. Um, then uh, as a product of our, of, of sexual selection and um, processes that are other animals like humans have experienced that can create um, average differences in behavior across males and females. Um, that would mean that on average, then me, sort of male and female leadership in humans might have a certain uh, slightly different tenor. Um, and that uh, uh, at the least would suggest we don't want, you know, we would want lots of women in leadership and not just men, not just for the sake of equity for its own sake, but that there might be slightly different approaches to leadership that would be, uh, any sort of organization or country or you know, business would benefit from slightly different approaches to risk taking on average uh, approaches to coalition building. Um, and so, yeah, I think leadership you know, uh, by, by men and women is largely the similar, but there can be all these average small differences that might matter on aggregate. Mm. What about the costs and the benefits of leadership and followership? Because I think, I don't know, when people watch movies that have got a really strong lead in it that they find themselves identifying with, you you start to think, well, that that would be me. I would be the, the guy that's at the, the Gladiator or the Spartacus or the whatever that's at the front of it. But it's not 
just all positives, presumably, and also followership isn't just all negatives. So what are some of the costs and the benefits of both of those? Right. So uh, um, can't have too many cooks in the kitchen or else nothing gets made. Um, you know, say, I think that's what you're alluding to is also it can't, you can't have everybody be a follower and then nothing else, nothing gets done either. So um, their costs. And so that's right. There is some of the, the benefits of actually being a follower are that you're a member of a group that is actually accomplishing something. Um, you're able to achieve goals uh, as a member of a group compared to other groups that have too many people vying for leadership or too few people vying for leadership. Um, benefits to followership also include less sort of, ex- sort of reputational costs from not achieving group goals. Um, where there's oh, fall more you're, not on on the, you're not on the hook for the performance as much. Right. Um, and at the same time, you're maybe gaining experience to in the future become a leader. That's another potential benefit. Um, so yeah, um, I think we are all, you know, I don't see any people born leaders or followers rather I think we have psychology that sort of weighs our individual attributes, the situations we're in, the other members of our group, how they compare to us. And we're constantly kind of adjusting who we're deferring to or our own sort of motivations to try and get influence others in strategic ways that, um, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. So I don't think you know we're either leaders or followers, but these these costs and benefits um, play out very dynamically, depending upon how we assess ourselves relative to others in our groups and relative to the situations we find ourselves in. The situation part is really interesting. Thinking about the fact that you might have someone who would be a great leader in one particular type of ecology or situation, and then fifty years later something completely different has happened and that would be the worst person to choose. Somebody that's super risk-taking at a time when you need to be sort of bold and decisive. Someone that's super conservative when things are going badly and you actually need to make some changes. All exactly. of these different elements. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's something I hadn't considered. Yeah, and it relates back to that discussion of, you know, this interesting preferences that individuals have for dominant kinds of traits when their groups face you know, sort of existential kinds of issues. Um, those same individuals at other times would not be favored as leaders. Um, what are the dynamics that are important for regulating that leader follower relationship? Because, you know, you often hear about the, uh, tumultuous and precarious leader that is oppressive, the tyrant that's keeping everybody down. But yeah. what are the, um, important metrics that are mediating that? Uh, I think key is the the size of the leader's coalition. So if they have a big enough coalition that is benefiting from their leadership, that's that can do the trick. Um, but, you know, I think the more democratic you get or the smaller the group size, such that leaders really have to convince most group members of their benefits, I think key is leaders' ability to display uh, what's called procedural fairness, that they're acting in the interests of group members. So even if outcomes – Leaders' outcomes are the dis- outcomes of their decisions uh, are not sort of benefiting everybody equally. So long as people perceive that leaders are trying to treat everybody in the group fairly, then um, that's key for leaders gaining legitimacy and keeping their positions. Um, and so I think as members of groups, we're always on the lookout for leaders acting in ways that betray a sort of selfishness or. Uh, that's not re- sort of regarding others, other group members as 
um, equal partners and a sort of a group project. You know, we're so quick to want to jump on leaders that do things that, that betray, you know, um, yeah, kind of selfishness that maybe they're not displaying most of the time. I think that explains a lot of our fascination with like in politics, um, sort of the affairs of, of politicians or um, when politicians say things that appear to contradict what they had said earlier. We're, we're constantly on the lookout for leaders that might be um, potentially acting not in our interests. Is that because the impact of a leader that wasn't acting in our interests would be so outsized that it's super important that our radar is hyper attuned to whether or not they are? Yeah, we just don't want to be cheated, I think. Um, we don't want leaders to get more than they deserve um, or for them to like lead the groups in directions that will primarily benefit them and not other, and not the rest of the group. Um, also, I think there's, there's, uh, been some discussion of the why, you know, the fact that we talk about these things too, we communicate about our leaders as a means of us potentially, um, establishing the, uh, collective action against that leader, should they, he or she act in selfish ways. So we're not only just sort of trying to figure out as individuals, are leaders benefiting us or acting selfishly? We're also communicating about this to others that can serve as a coordinative device. Oh, did you see what that leader did the other day? To help, you know, in, in, in the instance we need to act against that leader, we can do so by rallying around some kind of thing they did. Oh, okay. So that the gossiping behind the leader's back or the discussing after the presidential debate, candidate right. debate or whatever, right. that serves a number of functions it probably stress tests your interpretation of how that went i thought that he looked really oh, yeah. disingenuous did you think that he looked disingenuous it right. probably starts to create early coalitions in right. case you need to do something to push back against someone that it also would create a coalition that says i really liked what he said there about the going to get the berries tomorrow or whatever like let's i, th I feel like we should support him i've been saying we should go and get the berries for for ages yeah yeah, that's really interesting to consider that the gossip, especially about a leader, serves a purpose that is like externalizing a stress test about whether or not they are playing that fairness and cheater detection game. And also maybe other members of the group, you know, disagree with you about whether the leader is acting selfishly. So you're, like you're saying that stress test is, hmm, can I get other people to, to potentially coordinate with me against the leader? Let's see. Right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I suppose as well, that would suggest that leadership, which is primarily done through like very heavy dominance, is going to be a little bit more fragile. If you mm -hmm. don't ever allow dissent in a relatively small group, then people are eventually going to find a way. You're going to squeeze it so hard that it's going to come out the sides and people are going to find a way to have a discussion outside of earshot of you and your goons. And then eventually those people are going to rally together and then get rid of you. Right. But the hard part is when you, you know, your goons, right, is key because I don't think there's any pure dominance. You know, lead, leaders can't act purely on the basis of dominance, meaning like trying to dominate everybody else. That won't work. You know, you need two or three people and then they can physically overwhelm an individual. So it's always the size of that dominant individual's coalition. Can they provide enough benefits to those coalition members that can then enable them to, to act more dominantly towards everybody else? Um but once your your coalition falls apart, then you're done. So yes, uh, yeah, isn't there? There's something similar to this to do with chimpanzees as well, right? The chimpanzees yeah. can band together, and then 
it doesn't matter how big any one chimp is, any three other chimps can pretty much just rip them limb from limb. Yeah, similar politics, I think. But I think what makes humans different is that we are much better able to form lo- really large coalitions, often with non-kin, and can use them to overthrow the existing hierarchy. Rather than like a lot of those chimp sort of political coalitions are often just at the top of the hierarchy. This sort of, you know, second, third, fourth ranking males maybe coming together, trying to overthrow the top ranking male. Rather than, you know, the whole bottom three quarters of the, the group coming together simultaneously, having the shared goal. Maybe there's even leadership amidst, you know, within that bottom three quarters emerging to orchestrate, coordinate, to overthrow the top quarter. That's, I think, really uniquely human. Um, what is there anything else that you see in modern politics that is a interesting reflection of a an evolutionary adaptation that you think that we've got when it comes to our relationship to leaders and us scrutiny and skepticism of them? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think our outsized attention to leaders' personal lives as sort of means of trying to assess: oh, are they doing things that might be selfish? Um, I think there are other things that reflect maybe our our evolutionary history of, of cooperating and leading in smaller groups that we see play out in our large-scale societies. Um, like the way we organize our leader-follower relationships and often in these sort of tiered hierarchies, we create these bureaucracies that sort of have tiered structures that in a sense are sort of recreating smaller groups at each level with face-to-face leadership and followership. But those groups are embedded within larger groups, embedded within larger groups. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you're saying that um, the fact that you would have a, a a Senate and within the Senate, there's still a degree of hierarchy within that. And then downstream from the Senate, you've got the people that they enact and then downstream from that. and downstream. So you're exactly. nesting, you're nesting small groups that have more power and then it scales up and up and up until the one person at the top. Right. It's military hierarchy. Similarly, any sort of, you know, business is structured that way. Uh, larger, the larger they get, the more likely to adopt these nested hierarchies. Um, I think because it facilitates this face-to-face leader-follower interaction within groups as well, but, you know, in, and in ways that can help then coordinate decision-making um, throughout the much larger group. You know, as opposed to say, you know, uh, several thousand people are part of some some business, you know, with no hierarchy, all sort of just reporting to one leader, you know, mm. really tricky. Yes, yes, because how would you be able to, there's no coalition ability, it's just one huge big soup of people that right. you're all getting. Okay. Is there anything for us to learn about leadership from non-mammal animals? I, I always think about um, bees and ants and stuff, and you've got the queen right. within this, right. but I never really hear any parallels drawn between insects and humans. Is that because their development is so different to ours that basically we're talking about an entirely different, not only species, not only lineage, but it might as well be a, a different world? And in some senses, I'd say, yeah, that they have these kind of large colonies um, that are with all kinds of incredible self-sacrifice that you don't see in humans. Um and, you know, coordination among, you know, thousands of individuals that's happening really fluidly without any obvious, you know, bureaucracy, right? There might be a queen, but a queen's not, you know, actively directing things, you know. 
Um, at the same time, then there's also evidence of like leadership happening in terms of implementing punishments and rewards. So there's some, I think, ant species where this has been shown where when workers sort of cheat by trying to reproduce, produce their own eggs, you'll see in some species the queen will come and, uh, and sort of target those you know, uh, individuals for punishment. Uh, oh, like the actual public mechanism. execution. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. If it's if it's not if it's just like eating the eggs that they produced or doing something else um, to the actual ants that did that. Um, there are other worker worker ants that will take on that um, punishment role. Um, so yeah, um, they're not just sort of like you know the Borg, but can it, can engage in these sort of smaller interindividual dynamics that involve punishment and reward. Um, so that might be some kind of, yeah, I, I learned from, uh, Joe Henrik about gerontocracies Mm. and I'd never heard about those before. Have you looked at these in humans? Yes. Yeah. So there are smaller scale societies, hunter gatherers, particularly in Australia. There's, there's several gerontocracies where it's the oldest of the old males who are highly polygynous and are sort of lead the sort of rituals of the group. Um, and what's really interesting about that is that these are hunter-gatherers, a lot of these gerontocracies. And so um, often hunter-gatherers, you tend to see less pronounced hierarchy, less polygyny, because there's not a lot of wealth for individuals to monopolize. And, you know, when, when there's societies get wealthier, you often see males will monopolize that wealth, form coalitions to defend it and enhance their pol- opportunities for polygyny. So that you see this in hunter-gatherers without a lot of wealth. It's really interesting, these gerontocracies. And so leadership there, yeah, it's concentrated in sort of older men. Um, I don't know. What context did you discuss it was just, I was, that so with I, him? I, I found it interesting that um, he, he mentioned young male syndrome is super prevalent in these particular types of groups, which is you have all of these young guys who have got high testosterone and no family and no partner. So why don't they just run around and cause mischief and stuff like that? Uh, And he mentioned that they're inherently unstable, but then how, how would they ever stick about? You'd only ever see them for a couple of generations and then they'd change. So there must be some degree of stability. It was in a mating context to do with the fact that these older guys capture basically all of the women. And in order for the younger men to be able to mate, there's decades worth of ritual and process and rite of passage after rite of passage after something else that they got to go through. And then eventually, finally, they get to earn the right to mate. I, I just, I figured that it must be super fragile and instable. Yeah, I think the ways of mitigating that problem are when you create sort of men's organizations that are create bonds between these older and younger men and sort of show the younger men, Oh, there's a pipeline where you can, you know, with age and time and demonstrating your value to the community, you will get to be where I am. Um, and often, it, you know, it, those often emerge in more warlike societies. So warfare becomes that vehicle for the younger men to establish themselves. Um, but with these, gerontocracies in Australia, it's, yeah, much more tenuous, I'd say, because you don't have these strong men's organizations. You don't have, you know, there's war, there's some degree of warfare, though. Um, And this, you know, one thing maybe helps is, as you just said, a lot of ritualization. Um, So I don't know, it's it's an ongoing uh, debate, but there is variation within these 
Australian um, hunter-gatherers that was documented by anthropologists. And so you do see there is some evidence that there are higher rates of polygyny, the gerontocracy is more pronounced in those aborigines that were living closer to the coast with, with sort of denser resources um, and uh, more where resources could be more controlled. So in a sense, it is there is some... Oh, that's because if the resources were less available you would need to have everybody on side you would have to have everybody working together as opposed to going against you why, why is that the case why is it yeah it, it, one it could um reduce the need for cooperation across individuals in terms of sharing resources secondly when there's wealth um is more monopolizable you can defend certain say fisheries or productive soils or um, something or, you know, parcels of land, uh, those that can do that well can enforce, say, polygyny, uh, enforce their their leadership on others. And so, yeah, there's th there is that variation within these sort of these gerontocratic societies where the more defensible the resources, the more polygyny you see, the, the more intense the gerontocracy. You've mentioned so, there about the relationship between local ecology and the way that hierarchy, group structure, leadership gets deployed. What What is there to know there? Because I didn't realize until reading your work about just how much of this is influenced local resources, about just how much risk there is from outside groups, all of that stuff. I think key is, the biggest key, I think, is group size. So how ecology shapes group size is is huge. So why leadership at all to help solve coordination and collective action problems. You know, groups face trying to solve these problems. You know, they can break down just because people aren't able to coordinate well or, you know, accomplishing group goals could break down because enough people are cheating or free riding on the, on the whole, on the, you know, everybody else. So those problems just get worse as groups get bigger. And so if you're in an ecology with lots of plentiful resources that enables populations to grow, um, you can get, uh, more conflicts, more coordination failure, more free riding that might create demand for leaders to help resolve those issues. And you as group member, you might even want to endow leaders with certain rights and, and responsibilities, formalized rights and responsibilities as groups get larger. So group size is one huge thing that is also dependent upon the, the larger ecology. But then also this was just referencing with the in Australia the more that there are defensible resources, the more that certain lineages, coalitions, um, family units can control and defend resources and then impose a sort of hierarchy on others um, by controlling access to valued resources. What would an example of defensible resources be? Uh, so um, uh, productive fishery, like a salmon run. I, I mentioned that because you see there are hunter-gatherers in the Pacific Northwest that are well uh, well studied because they had um, uh, inherited chiefdoms. So chief chieftainships were inherited. They had slavery. Um, these were hunter-gatherers. Um, but what the reason that we think that um, they had such intense hierarchies, a lot of um, really formalized coercive leadership is because those leaders could and their families controlled access to the best fishing sites. Um, and so that, that whole sort of the, the way that uh, resources can be controlled and used to benefit you and yourself and your kin, I think is an, 
another channel in addition to group size that can influence the extent of hierarchies and the way and the extent to which leadership is formalized and even given coercive or takes on coercive kind of properties. Because if the resources were indefensible, then how would you be able to coerce? People could leave more freely. They would be able to go and do what they yeah. wanted. But that's also part of it. I mean, if you can leave, then you can, you leave. So it, it requires resources being defensible and they're not being great exit options. People are going to stick around because they're like, yeah, you know, I'm not doing as well as other people in this group, but it's, at least it's, it's better than leaving. So um, that exit option is also important. Um, so I think in, in the grant the grand scheme of things, uh, that defensibility of resources is really much more powerful in driving up the degree of coercive leadership. Um, uh, but that, you know, also the effect of group size matters a lot too. And just, you know, societies and communities benefiting from, from leadership and higher and sort of that differentiation of leaders and followers can also go up with larger groups. Um, so yeah, there's a a lot of ways in which I think ecology matters. Does that mean that more defensible resources and generally more resources overall increases inequality within the group yeah typically yeah i think that there's that tendency over human history you know um where the wealthier uh groups become the more likely you are to see certain individuals monopolize surplus production or monopolize the resource base um that generates that wealth so, yeah, I think that's that's I think rarely the case that, you know, um, societies get richer. It's just, you know, automatically distributed across yeah. everybody. Well, I suppose yeah. that's a kind of an obvious an obvious question that if there isn't a surplus, what are you going to capture in order to be able to create an inequality? Uh, if, if everybody is living hand to mouth, there is only the exact amount that you mm-hmm. need in order to, or perhaps a little bit less than the amount that you need in order to be able to survive. No, nobody can start to store anything. Everybody's right. just doing what they can to get by. Yeah, I suppose that. I mean, that's what one of the main things that I learned from uh, uh, Sapiens, right? By uh, Yuval Noah Harari about the fact that up until whatever fifteen thousand years ago, there's no opportunity for people to have massive amounts of inequality because there's nowhere near enough uh, surplus resources. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm. I mean, you, sometimes these coordination collective action problems are, are you know, um, c- cyclical increases in group size that might have occurred in hunter-gatherers might increase demand for more formalized leadership to help resolve problems of coordination and collective action. But really, to really kick that up and make that a more permanent, kind of, you know, especially coercive kind of leadership, you really need the defensible resources where – um, for, you know, there's surplus production that can be defended and used to benefit you and your coalition. Um, what does that, how do you relate that to the current way that we look at leadership in the modern world? Is there something to be said about um, compartmentalized, secretive information, about us not feeling a degree of transparency between what we know that our leaders are doing and our awareness of it and stuff like that? Is there any, it feels like there might be some sort of a crossover there. It's just, it's, it's strange in our society where, you know, I think most people hugely underestimate levels of wealth inequality. Um, and 
you know, whether that wealth inequality is justified or not, I think we tend to not, we tend to see what's around us. So we compare ourselves to our neighbors or our coworkers. And um, I think that tends to be our unit of analysis is the people we're encountering face to face. I think where we truly concerned about, you know, um, you know, the, the, our country as a whole uh, and the distribution of wealth, um, you know, it might be better served by a clear understanding of just how wealth is distributed and, and I think most people are not aware of just that the level of inequality. Um, Do you think that that's the same both ways round? Do you think that mm-hmm. people that are incredibly poor are as unaware as the people that are incredibly wealthy? Yeah, um, but to the you know on the, on the, probably, but to the extent that you know we see urban environments really concentrate extreme poverty and extreme wealth, maybe that people in urban environments have a better sense of things. Uh, yes, the, the actually, gap. because you're driving past or watching people drive past right. as you are someone. Oh, yeah, that's right. interesting. Okay, so what do you think, in your opinion, do you think that leaders are altruistic or selfish? Are they motivated by the desire to help or the desire for power? Uh, I think you can answer that at a more proximate level and a more ultimate level. So proximately, um, do leaders take on leadership roles because they really feel like they're being altruistic and helping the group uh, or they're doing it for selfish motivations and like they have designs to actually enrich themselves. And, and then at an ultimate level, you know, you could explain even that supposedly, you know, consciously altruistic motivation on the part of leaders uh, in terms of, you know, having that kind of motivation over evolutionary timescales, you know, might've been profitable, adaptive, um, because it, uh, enhanced your reproductive success. So, um, that's something I've shown that, you know, some of my research, even in small scale, relatively egalitarian hunter gatherers, individuals that have higher status, including have taken on leadership positions or, um, have greater influence in community decision-making tend to experience greater reproductive success. Um, and so, you know, uh, at an ultimate level, perhaps that more that pro-social motivation of leaders can be explained by the sort of ways that that actually, you know, tended to generate positive reputations, uh, increase your status, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, now, you know, so even in case where leaders say take a huge pay cut or, you know, or do things like that, to what extent are they still benefiting otherwise in terms of reputation or you know, in other ways. Yeah, and I think, um, especially in, in the modern world, and presumably this would have been reflected ancestrally as well, if you go through a period of being the leader, as long as you don't leave disgraced, you have generated a ton of goodwill and, like, uh, how do you say, vestigial renown that you mm-hmm. can carry with you until the rest of time. So, yeah, even though right now, for the next eight years, Mr. President, you will be paid this small amount of money, you know, you are given an unbelievable amount of opportunities on the other side of that. I mean, Nick Clegg, who was the former co-prime minister of the UK, only within the last 10 years, is now the global communications director or something for Facebook. And Uh, he's involved in all manner of of other bits Mm. and pieces. So yeah, I think uh, that makes a lot of sense. One of the interesting uh, insights that you talked about there is this relationship between uh, status and mating success. What did you What did you learn there? Other than more status is probably good for mating success. Uh, I think because 
you know, a lot of these smaller scale hunter gatherer societies are often they're often framed as being egalitarian, and they are, a lot of them very are fiercely egalitarian, where people who brag or try and coerce others are rapidly put down. Um, group members will act against them. Um, at the same time, having a kind of displaying a kind of humble leadership and 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 providing being generous um, can lead to you getting these kind of, especially among men, uh, mating benefits. And so, um, yeah, it just suggests that, uh, you know, there are motivations for, for gaining influence in any human society, right? In any, in a society, no matter how egalitarian there, there is hierarchy, however subtle, however camouflaged, um, that produces, can produce these uh, reproductive variation. Maybe not in a lot of modern scale societies um, with you know, contraception, um, with uh, socially imposed monogamy, um, uh, smaller family sizes in general. But uh, at least the evidence that I've, I've gathered suggests that, you know, ancestrally, even in relatively egalitarian societies, it was likely the case that um, influence, leadership had reproductive benefits on aggregate. Mm, yeah, so you might end up with uh, better mating success in the modern world, but not necessarily translate that into reproductive success with some of the boundaries that we've placed in between the right, the, right. the act and the outcome. Or even maybe maybe not even mating success either. But uh, what you do have is that reputation that maybe ancestrally would have translated more readily into mating success and reproductive success. So people um, still choose to seek it. Right. regardless of whether or not it's going to cause okay yeah that's that's interesting right. what about if it was a female leader or a female that had a lot of dominance did you ever look at the relationship between female status and reproductive success yeah there's not as much good evidence there um in part because a lot of sort of male influence and politicking is just much more um obvious than uh, and overt than uh, than women's sort of politicking and and coalition formation and that kind of thing. Um, also, you pronounce gender divisions of labor, in, especially in sm these smaller scale societies like I work with. Um, and so, uh, yeah, what evidence I do have of women's status in terms of popularity or um, influence? There is some evidence that it's more women translate that status more into um, child survival and, and sort of family welfare on average relative to males. Um, not that males don't do that, but that women are more likely to, or, and in comparison, men are more likely to translate their status into mating opportunity relative to women. Not that women don't do that, but you know, there are these slight average differences. And so, what evidence I have seen, including some I've done with the, the group I work with in the, the Amazon, is that um, motive, suggest motivations for acquiring status and, and specifically for acquiring leadership might differ on average across the, the sexes. Um, but there are lots of motivations for acquiring leadership, but this this fundamental sort of mating motive and, uh, might differ on yeah. average. Does, is there a difference in mating success when status is taken from dominance compared with when status is taken from prestige? Uh, good question. Um, so I, I did find some evidence in the, in, the, in the group I work with in the Amazon that status 
um, based more on dominance uh, related to fighting ability, um, impacts reproductive success, just like status related to sort of like uh, um, freely accorded influence that people give to somebody who they, they, they perceive as prestigious, that in both cases, um, this was a study of men, uh, men had greater mating success um, and more extramarital affairs as well. Um, but for, uh, I think there was a difference though, in terms of, um, agent marriage. So the, the route you get to that mating success differs where I think it was, and I could be confusing this, but, uh, the more prestigious individuals are more likely to get married at younger ages. Um, and so there was some slight variation there. Um, but nothing I would hang my head on. Got you. And what about the sex yeah. ratio? How does the sex ratio within a a, a group change roots to power, um, dominance versus prestige as being the tools that are being used? And are, are there any other interesting things about the sex ratio? Yeah. Um, so that's a you know a good question. Something I, I want to think more about. I think the what's known about sex ratio effects on our behavior uh, suggests that many where there's many more men um you can get greater competition among men um because they are you know more there's more competition for mating opportunity um at the same time there's also evidence that with you have a lot more men when men do form partnerships uh with women they're much more likely to be respectful and um less domestic violence and because they're sort of you know, the fact if you lose that partner, you're then out in the sort of mating game again. So it's really risky. to. Um, I think where men are in the minority, you get um, uh, men are more willing to to sort of pursue shorter term mating goals. They can drive that uh, the mating market because they're they're sort of in um, have greater influence given their small numbers. So I think, yeah, to the extent when, when the, the sex ratio is skewed more towards women, there are few men, and men's mating goals can predominate in the sort of mating market, um, men might be more likely to pursue leadership and status for those aims, particularly, to just enhance their mating opportunity, perhaps even more explicitly. That might mm. be a prediction I'd make. That's interesting. What would be a reason ancestrally about why there would be a skew in the sex ratio at all? Like men and women-ish are born at around about 50 50 yeah what would be some of the things that would have caused there to be a significant skew in that could you think um high rates of homicide produce that especially given that you know, homicide is more likely to involve males and females um so there are there were skewed sex ratios for example in um the inuit populations where male, adult males were more likely to die um violent death and and then there's also infanticide that um, uh, also affects things. So because of veils were, were more likely to have violent death, um, they were also there was also a lot of female infanticide because males were sort of valued sort of producers and were more rare. And so you could get this then skewed sex ratio where there are many more men. Um, that can then exacerbate the sort of male-male conflicts later in life and sort of perpetuate that kind of... Oh, um, so women would have, after birth, disposed of a female baby. Right. 
Wow. So those are two main mechanisms, I think, is adult mortality and then infanticide early in life, where it's selective by gender. Would um, intergroup yeah. conflict play a role here? Would there be a potential of, um, I guess, a proliferation of women might be if your tribe went and killed all of the men in another tribe and then took all of those women? I don't know how common that would be. I mean, I think the, the frequency of warfare in hunter-gatherers and especially in ancestral human hunter-gatherers is debated. Um, certainly homicides are frequent. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I think my view is that warfare has played a selection pressure in human psychology for, you know, a long time. Um, and, yeah, to the extent that can create skewed local sex ratios, you know, because our psychology does respond to differences in sex ratio, it suggests that ancestrally we experience variation in sex uh, ratios. That is so interesting. You know? So yes. it would have to come from somewhere. Yes. Um, Dude, I love that. I love that insight. I love the fact that the only reason that we're able to respond to this is because previously we would have been exposed to it. I mean, you could argue some kind of like, well, you could reason your, you know, you find yourself in some sex ratio and you could sort of use some kind of logic or reason to suggest, Oh, I maybe I should adapt my mating psychology now, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I'm persuaded that, you know, evolution has shaped our psychology such that it's responsive by design to yes. variation in sex ratio. Dude, that's, that is really, really cool. Look, Chris Von Ruden, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, where should they go on the internet? Google Chris Von Ruden. Look for my Google Sites website. I got some papers and talks and public, sort of popular articles and stuff up there. So look for me there. Chris, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.